I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 91 on Philip Jose Farmer's The Lava Light World. I'm Jeff, and with me today is that gate-hopping hoy. Hello. So glad to be here. Had to, uh, you know, hop over from three dimensions over. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today, Hoy. And with us today, we also have game designer, streamer over at Salty Sweet Games, and the co-author of the TTRPG Safety Toolkit, Kiana Shaw. Hey, Kiana. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Hi, super Kiana. excited to be here. <laughs> so glad to have you on. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the show. So, Kiana, tell us, how did you get into gaming? Yeah, so um, I am part of that generation of TTRPG players and GMs and all that stuff who got interested because of streaming. Mm. Um, I uh, basically, I was a fan of a content creator and they were like, hey, uh, I am going to be on the official Wizards D&D channel playing D&D. And I'm like, what's D&D? What's that? Um, and so I, I followed I followed them over onto the official Wizards channel. Um, and as soon as I was there, I kind of fell in love with the game and the story that was being told. Um, and this was coming at a time also, I was in my first year of university. Uh, I was living away from home for the first time, uh, and figuring out all that. And I was kind of feeling unmoored in terms of like my creativity and mm. it kind of felt everything just kind of fit together that I was like, this is exactly what I was looking for. Um, and this is something that I'm really wanting to be into. So um, as is my usual nature, I kind of jumped into it headfirst and just landed. And here I am now, uh, a few years later, uh, doing game design and streaming and all that other good stuff. So was this specifically, I mean, the Wizards stream was 5th edition. Was your actual first gameplay experience 5th edition D&D or was it something else? Yeah, it was 5th edition edition, uh, D&D. So yeah, so that's my first experience ever with TTRBGs as a, you know, uh, both as a you know, just getting into the culture. And also um, when I eventually started playing myself, uh, I started off with D&D 5e as well. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of indie stuff under your belt. And what what was that sort of bifurcation like from, you know, the, you know, the super mainstream and then this indie stuff that you're doing on top yeah, of that? Yeah, so like, um, so... I got pretty involved in the streaming community very early, um, the TTRPG streaming community very specifically. Um, and I got, uh, I was part of a, a streaming channel for, for a while. Um, and they were pretty good. Um, well, they were doing D&D 5e, uh, but they were also involving other systems like Call of Cthulhu 7 edition. Mm. Um, so I got involved into that pretty early on in my uh, TTRPG career. I guess that's what we can call it. Uh, my TTRPG career. Um, so I got I got introduced to you know the fact that there are other systems out there, not just D and D five E, pretty quickly. And then from there, I was kind of just starting to look at you know what else is out there, what else is cool to play. Um, and so you know I I got into uh, Lady Blackbird by John Harper um, pretty early on as well, and I fell in love with that, and that kind of just opened the gates to what 
else could be out there and mm. what other cool ways of telling stories and how mechanics and story can come together to form really interesting uh, gameplay experiences. Very cool. Now, were you interested in uh, genre literature prior to getting into gaming or did that kind of come after gaming? What was that relationship like? Um, I... I'm definitely one of those stereotypical kids who had nose in book uh, very often. Um, I was a very avid reader. I read very much ahead of my age uh, group as well. So uh, yeah, so uh, genre reading, especially uh, spec fic, uh, was a huge part of uh, my my growing up. Uh, and I, I, I like to joke that you know I I started reading uh, religious texts at the same time that I was reading mythology and my brain just kind of mushed them together uh-huh. um, into like this, you know, oh, like here are just all these different ways of looking at the world. Yeah. Um, and so I've always just had this kind of like, I, I love, uh, I love genre fiction uh, in all of its different manners, but I definitely mm-hmm. have a soft spot for fantasy and sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And actually you bring up an interesting point because we were talking to Sharon uh, Biswas, right? And he was talking mm-hmm. about you know, obviously for us, we look at something like the Mahabharata or something like that, and that's, uh, you know, mythology, but it is still a living religious text for, you know, hundreds of millions or even, you know, over a billion people in South Asia, right? So we have to be sort of careful about how we think about that and use that and appropriate it if we're, mm-hmm. we're doing that in our, you know, gameplay. Yeah, exactly. Other, yeah, so. And what kind of literature has, um, have you found really inspirational for your gaming? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I feel like a lot of, because I was, I, I read so many books and I, I did them at such a fast pace that like they've all kind of blended into my brain. Um, but in terms of like things that have actually inspired how I do game design and stuff like that, um, Shakespeare has had a huge amount of in- influence on on how I write and how I run stuff. Okay. Um, most because um, one, uh, reading Shakespeare's you know, we always think of stuffy, boring English classes, you know, let's dissect every single line. What does it mean for Hamlet to go to be or not to be? But I think there's this really interesting way that Shakespeare goes through his stories and, and one, communicates them for a, a, a very wide audience. Um, he's, you know, at a time where patronage was so important and most artwork was, uh, was formed for uh, nobility, at least ones that we remember now. He was speaking to the everyday people and his stories were focused towards that. And how do we take these great, grandest, <laughs> grandier ideas that he presents in a lot of his, uh, especially his tragedies, uh, and communicate them to uh, people and then make them interesting, like give them twists uh, and well, well laid out twists, like not like the, and surprise, there's a thing behind the curtain and you would never have guessed because I had no foundation leading up to it. Um, <laughs> there's he He's very, and all of them are such character-driven things as well. Like, obviously there are overarching stories, but he had such care for, you know, with playwriting, you have to focus on the characters. Uh, and I think that's something that I've taken into, you know, my my gaming where, Yes, we are telling a story, but we're telling a story through the view of these characters and their interactions with each other and their interactions with the world. Um, and then how do we go out from there? And mm-hmm. like, I also love, you know, uh, pulling the what I like to call the fae bullshit uh, of of his uh, of his comedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like what kind of trickery does does comes up here? What kind of thing can you throw at the at the characters and make it fun? Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I've always been also interested in, you know, uh, the Fae, uh, like Fae mythology and stuff like that. So that's also kind of carried over into how I how I look at games and stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you um, 
uh, your fellow Canadian uh, use Robin D. Laws's Hamlet's hit, Hamlet's hit points. Is that something that you have looked at or drawn upon as well? Or uh... I, I haven't. Um, I, I have definitely heard and and uh, respect the work that's done, but mm-hmm. uh, hadn't been something that crossed over my own. Uh, right. I haven't read yet. that myself. I looked at uh, some of his other work, but not specifically. I, but he is also very much into the idea of drama beats specifically, too. And I think yeah. you're talking a little bit more by character, but he's specifically talking about story structure and drama beats uh, is one of the things that he likes to play with. Yeah, I, I, I come from a uh, I come from a very, very artistic background. Um, but uh, a lot of my childhood, I did dance for several years uh, growing up and I did theater uh, in uh, most of high school and university as well. Um, so and then I did uh, creative writing as well uh, for most of that. So it kind of all blended together in my own brain uh, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. I approach stuff. So, yeah, it explains why Shakespeare is a big one for me. <laughs> okay. Sure. And is there a specific Shakespeare text that you found especially inspirational? Ooh, I mean, I'm a big fan of of Macbeth. I think that it's one of his best plays. Uh, he's done an inc- uh, it's it's such an incredible character study. Mm-hmm. Um and you know it is a very it's it's a very political story, um, but it, it's cushioned in such you know it it's translated to this you know very character driven narrative where we're able to talk about you know right. uh, you know tragedy and betrayal and what that means in a in a in a larger context for the repercussions in the real world for right. them. Plus, you've got <laughs> witches and ghosts, so you know. <laughs> yeah, that too. Like weird witch and and like you know it. it Using the witches as like kind of a Greek core situation mm-hmm. where, you know, you're able to kind of narrate the foreshadowing that's going to go on, you know, best laid, uh, best laid uh, twists well, and stuff, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're setting it out there. Right, right. <laughs> And a lot of the foreshadowing, all the foreshadowing of yeah, um, uh, and Wood and all that other stuff like it, that. Exactly, yeah. Right, right. Very cool. Now, um, let's let's also go ahead and take a look at which edition of Philip Jose Farmer's The Lava Light World we're working with today. Kiana, what are you working with? I, I am working with, I am actually not sure. This is the one that you, I think this is, this is the one oh, that that's you right. sent me. I sent you, that's right. I yes. sent you a text, a text copy of it. Yes, perfect. Uh, you have a text copy of the, um, of the paperback that Hoy and I are both also reading. Awesome. Right. Whoops. Back cover. Back yeah, cover. I was. I, I, I was. I, I did order it, and then it got stuck at the border, <laughs> and I was like, "Great, love that for me." <laughs> yep. Yep. U.S. mail is, yeah, is right. a, a bit of a problem right now. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, we've got this cover here where it is. Uh, well, this is the 1977 Ace paperback with the Boris Vallejo cover. We have a blonde and basically naked Anana. Um, riding behind Kikaha on one of these explosion, exploding um, trunk monsters fighting off the birds in the sky. Right, right. Although I always pictured her as brunette, so I'm not sure why I, I thought she was, you know, brunette. I, yeah, I also, I, I, I think the text says she's a brunette. Yeah. But maybe, maybe I'm mistaken. Right. And Kikaha has bell bottoms too. Let's also observe that he has bell bottoms. <laughs> oh, you're right. Those are bell bottoms. That was the weirdest thing with going through this book and being like, they're wearing jeans. <laughs> <laughs> like they were, book- except when they were wearing nothing but a belt. Because there was a yeah. big chunk of the book where the two of them are wearing nothing but a belt. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there was like a solid part where it's like, hold on, they're wearing, she- they're running through this dangerous world. <laughs> In jeans. <laughs> All right. That's correct. Yep. 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 <laughs> cool. So, um, and Hoy, do you have anything you want to add about your edition? Um, so I did read this one, but I was also working from the ebook copy, which is currently available from Amazon. And that is a slightly different text. It's the Greg hardcover text, which was a limited edition text 
in the early 80s, which he corrected what he thought were, you know, some typos and stuff like that. And might have um, added a few sentences that were, you know, taken back out by the editors. So um, I know that that's his currently preferred text or he's passed away, but his preferred final text of these books. But I don't think you would notice a lot of difference if you were unless you were doing a close side by side comparison. Perfect. And now we can take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Prevaricator. Prevaricator. And prevaricator is on page 82 on, on, on our edition. And it says, it was evident that he was going to denounce the captive as a prevaricator the moment he ceased speaking. And prevaricator is just a fancy word for a liar. You're a liar. Um, Kiana, was there anything that you thought was especially um, pompous or interesting in terms of word choices? Yeah, um, I, I was going through and I'm like, I don't think I've ever read the word moosoid before, you know, like to describe something that is somewhat like a moose. Um, <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, okay, like we've established that this creature, um, you gave it a name in the native language. You don't have to keep calling it a moosoid that exists here. <laughs> now I want to I want to play a game where you play moosoids and genes. <laughs> it, it would be a very difficult life i think you know. <laughs> all right so we can head on over to the library um yeah kiana what did you think about philip jose farmer's the lava light world you know i i was thinking about this and i i was saying to myself that you know it's very easy to know that you know, old sci-fi is outdated in many ways and has mm -hmm. a lot of baked in stuff like sexism and racism, but it's very different to experience it. Uh, and there were many times when I was reading through this that I was like, I don't like this character and I don't like any of this is going on here. Like it's um, even coming from a from a just a, you know, literature reading standpoint. I don't know. Like this guy is the most unlikable protagonist I've ever read. Uh, and they present him without any flaws. Like, we understand as readers that a lot of his viewpoints are flawed because, you know, steeped in sexism and racism in there. But, you know, he, we spent, I don't know, like five pages talking about his tragic backstory and how he was so perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's so athletic and popular, but also smart and well-read, uh, but also, oh no, he was adopted. Uh, oh, but also, and 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 he started getting in trouble as a teenager. But no jail could hold him. He would he would yeah, he would he would get the, thrown the into judge, jail just so he could escape it. Yeah, yeah, and and the judge was like, "I don't want to take away your potential," and I'm like, "Oof, that." did not age well considering our current yeah that's very it it it, <laughs> it, it, it has um, very kind of brock turner echoes yeah yeah, yeah. And it's just it's just this whole we also spend like a few pages describing what happened to him in the previous books which was helpful for me as someone who is is coming into the series with no knowledge of what this is yeah. uh but i imagine for anyone who has is reading this series it's like yes i know that all of this happened to him. I read four books about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a strange info dump right in the middle of the book, right? Like it's yeah. whole, literally a whole chapter, right? It wasn't even at the beginning. It was like two, a third of the way in all of a sudden. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I also remember like when I was reading the Harry Potter books for the first time being like, why do we spend so much time telling us what happened to Harry in the previous books? Like I've read them, like, let's just keep going. But I guess like maybe the idea is like they want these things to be standalone as well. 
Um, and I feel like this one works better as a standalone than maybe like one of the Harry Potter books does. Like, right. I feel like that's really kind of more of a series, right, right. but uh, I think you're on a point there. And I think one assumption that we have to, maybe we've forgotten is that especially in the sort of the paper, the height of the paperback era, there was no guarantee. I mean, if you were a super collector or nerd, you would try to find all the books, but there was no guarantee that you would ever find the first book of a series. You might pick it up in the third or fourth book and just start reading and just have to just figure out what the story was from there. Right. Mm. And so that's why they might do that. But it was still strange to have the, 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 the info dump in like one third of the way into the book rather than yeah, right it, at the beginning. It felt very strange. And yeah. especially since, you know, we were introduced to the character and the, we're interfacing with him and then suddenly we're we're taught halfway like a third through the book like how we should think of him mm-hmm. and it that it didn't mesh like I, when i was reading first i'm like this guy's kind of an asshole <laughs> like, he's, mm-hmm. like he's this kind of like really flippant like um obviously like op character but like kind of in this you know he's egotistical and all this stuff and then again this info dump happens and suddenly you're supposed to sympathize with him in some way because of his quote-unquote tragic backstory uh and all of the challenges and hurdles that has been thrown through his way over the past however long he's been in this weird pocket dimension situation um, did you did you take this to be um when you read that like some, some sort of wish fulfillment on on uh phil pose farmer's part when you were looking at that or I mean, I think a lot of the genre at this time is a lot of it comes from, you know, a wish fulfillment kind of place and not necessarily of the author, but of, you know, uh, what we viewed as as, you know, the ideal masculine character. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Here's this ideal man, which funny enough, if that character was a woman um, and in any more modern day context, they'd be a Mary Sue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. They'd be like this wow, you're just doing this, like, impossibly amazing character. Um, And, you know, that's so ridiculous. Sure. Uh, And it is interesting to look at it because, you know, there's a gendered aspect to it. There's also, you know, different, uh, over the years, things have changed in how we view that as well. Uh, But there's definitely, like, this this point where we're looking at it going, yeah, wow, like, they're really wanting to do this perfect characters perfectly masculine person mm-hmm. uh again athletic popular smart uh i think i read he, he had a large ego but a healthy amount <laughs> yeah, right compared to uh, right. like compared near to the end book. of it compared yep. to like compared to the lord right. right it's like i i do also have a big ego but healthy and i'm like <laughs> are you sure about that my dude <laughs> well, and we do spend about a quarter of the book with Anana as our main protagonist, which is interesting because I don't believe at any other point in the history of the series were we ever with anybody other than a male protagonist. So Anana really was our main focus for about a quarter of the book. How did you feel about Anana as a character? In terms of Anana, like, so again, we, we spend most of the book seeing her through the view of the male characters, which is, yeah, you know... Yeah, and like, you know, even from the other lords and how they talk to her. And I think that's still carried on in her focus section. Like, literally, I think every few, like, pages, it would be, like, derogatory, like, words towards her about being a human lover. And Mm. I'm like, we get it. The lords don't like that she's, you know, degrading herself, quote unquote, to be with this dude. But it's very strange that we have to keep emphasizing this. In the point that's supposed to be about her, yeah. Um, and you know, we she is supposed to be this superhuman, otherworldly 
you know, being. Yeah. Um, but you know, made human, she was more humane by the fact that she's in love with a with a human man. Um, and so it's this kind of very interesting thing where I'm like, I can I can get a I am more okay with the you know the fact that she's super like powerful or whatever because it makes sense for what she is. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like we're constantly putting her down, even in her own focus section. Yeah, we're constantly bringing her down to their level, quote unquote, right? Like they're right. kind of like. You, yeah, I can see it that way. Could you see it the other way of just like this is the stuff that she has to struggle with, regardless of you know, and that that yeah. over t- over you know. 100,000 years of the Lord's uh, existence that they haven't gotten over petty egos and sexism and all the other stuff that we would yeah, hope. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a, a really interesting, you know, what happens with a lot of these is that I, I'm always like, they could have had a really interesting critique of these types of things, but because they didn't make it as if it was a bad thing, mm-hmm. that it just perpetuates. And I think that's a, a lot of the problems with uh, media that happens these days, where it's like, you know, it gets called out for being problematically sexist or racist or um or you know transphobic or homophobic uh and they go but no like the characters are like this because it's supposed to be a critique on that thing you're like well you didn't actually show that's a bad thing you just had the characters do it without mm-hmm. struck without like grappling with you know yeah. the the harm that comes from it the, the the repercussions that come from it so unless everybody who reads this is literally on the same page as you already, they're not seeing it as a critique. They're seeing it as potentially just somebody who feels this way and it maybe kind of normalizes that. Yeah. And, and you know, it's also like the focus is on the fact that she is a human lover um, rather than, you know, the power struggles that she would have as a woman or the power struggles that she would have, you know, um, as a a younger person in this, in this, uh, compared to the other lords, if I understand correctly, like she's the niece of the two other ones that are right. in the book, um, right? And and again, they they always talk about her attractiveness as well. Like they constantly talk, like, look at this beautiful woman who is also. Well, you know, and we always here. talk about how full-breasted she is. Yeah, and like, and like even in the scene where like she's like losing weight because she's been eating too much, they're talking about how like now her breasts are starting to sag. Like we're we're like. Everything about like how healthy she is in that moment is defined to us through how her breasts look at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's it's they could have been a really interesting look at, you know, at this, but instead it's just kind of ends up and she falls into a lot of the same pit traps that uh that Kikaha does in terms of like being clever. There was a part uh that both of them did where they both manipulated their the tribes that they were under the care of, their religion, to lie to them mm-hmm. to set themselves off as better. Like Kikaha goes like, I am, you know, I was sent here by your Lord to test you. And she does the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, and because they're both coded as, well, Kikaha is white uh, and uh, Anana is coded as a white person. Um, like, and all the tribes are coded as people of color. Then you kind of well, the first this, tribe. The uh, first one was kind of this weird, between, like yeah, they, they yeah. act like people. They they're, they're coded to act like people of color, but we discover that they're actually from I. They're like they're descended from the Irish. The, so like Celtic. it's a bunch of yeah, it's a bunch of like Celtic folk cosplaying as Native Americans. Is essentially yeah, exactly. What it is. Yeah, right. yeah, like the the tr- it 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 fits the tribalism as a you know you know as this barbaric thing and as you know again mostly 
coded to be like people of color. Um, and so the fact that there's both these white people coming in and being like, you're, I don't agree with your religion or your religion silly because I know the truth, quote unquote, you know, that the Lord is this person that we actually have traveled with. Um, and then it becomes, I'm going to manipulate the knowledge that I have and manipulate your belief for my own gain, which mm-hmm. for Kikaha was, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, be part of your, adopted by your tribe. Uh, and for Anana was, I'm going to establish a place of power here, mm-hmm. right? Well, also, in some would, way. The, the only bit I would push back about on that a little bit, though, is like their lives were literally at stake as well, though. Yeah. So like it wasn't a hundred percent coming from a, I am just going to take advantage of this so that I can oppress and manipulate you. It was also like, this is the tool that I, the tool I have in my tool belt to stay alive right now. Yeah, it, for sure. And and I think that's a really interesting thing that to look at, you know, um, do they feel bad about it at all? Right? Do they feel bad about it? And they don't. Like, I, like, I, un- I would understand, you know, coming in and be like, I have to do this to survive. And I'm going to do some, I'm, and then you're, when you're in a survival state, you're going to have to sometimes do things that are morally not right. But like, if you, if you don't feel somewhat bad about it, I have some questions about, you know, where you're coming from with this. Like, obviously in the moment, like, yes, you can't think about that stuff. You don't have the liberty to think about moral goodness if you're, if you're in a, in a place where, you know, Right. You don't even know if you're going to live. Yeah. Uh, but even as they're coming out of it, they're just like, yeah, it's fine. Right. Like, <laughs> <literally> <laughs> Kikaha is like, like, yeah. And and the f- weird thing about Kikaha, too, was that he was like, uh, I, I don't, I'm going to engage with your belief and I'm going to twist it to my own gain. And that's even beyond interfacing with the, uh, with the people. Like, uh, when he has to have sex with, uh, with a woman, the first time he's like, I have to do this, or I'm gonna die. And I'm like, okay, like it is kind of skeevy that you're not gonna tell your girlfriend that you had to do this, but sure, you had to do this to live. And then the second time when two women were like, Hey, we both wanna have sex with you because we know that you have to choose between <laughs> us to get married. And he's like, sure. And I'm like, Where was the regret that you expressed like two pages ago yeah. about having having an affair right. <laughs> like and cheating on your girlfriend well um, if you've already done it once once right, what's once, two more once, once the dance broken <laughs> right and so it's like he he takes that belief system to a, yeah. and manipulates to its own good in right. that sense as well right? right where he can just go i can engage in this behavior because these people said it's fine and right. again that wasn't a life or death situation in my in my view the second time it Agreed. was just like a right. self-indulgence thing yeah it's a, I was having fun doing this, so I'm going to keep doing it. Right. I yeah. do think there was an interesting interplay, though, when the shaman of the tribe was brought back to question him. And there was sort of that sort of mind sparring dueling about like, you know, OK, well, what am I going to do? It's like, well, am I doing this because I'm just afraid or am I doing this because it's the right thing? The shaman asking, you know, like. And mm-hmm. so I think there's an awareness, a certain level of awareness that Farmer has um, and, and certainly in the fiction as a whole, because a lot of this is very meta. Right. A lot of stuff like in that in that big biographical chapter that you mentioned is really references to 19th century classic adventure fiction like um uh phileas fogg from the jules Verne, jules Verne, and stuff like that so i think farmer has a certain level of meta awareness um but it is interesting it's kind of hard to get to understand like what his take on this all of this is right yeah exactly and it's just it's because it's left to this moral grayness we have to start looking at you know like so do you, I don't know if I can give you the benefit of the doubt here. Right, like, right, I right. don't know if I can give you the benefit of the doubt that you're going to be like, 
there was this whole speech that Anana had at Ursona, if I remember correctly, where it's just like the, you know, maybe you, like, we're not any better than humans. Like, uh, maybe we too were created. And like, what does that mean for us? Like, and all that stuff. And I think that was like one of the more profound parts of the book. And I, I enjoyed that, like being able to engage with the idea that, you know, we're not as high as mighty. But then also at the very beginning of the book, uh, Farmer drops the N-word twice mm-hmm. uh, to describe how how people, like how the Lords looked at humans as less than, aka like mm-hmm. black people, yeah. and mm-hmm. then dropping the N-word twice. And I was like, okay, like, I don't know where you're coming from here like i don't know what your your point is here uh to to look at this uh yeah and then and then you know there's a whole racial stuff with uh with the uh with mckay and a black man uh Mm -hmm. in this where you know he he also has i think he had one of the more moral complexity because you know he's a hired killer uh and bodyguard um and there was a point made about how like even though he's a black person, he still, you know, is very sexist. And I pointed mm, out how yeah. hypocritical that was. And I thought that was like an interesting point. Like, you know, there is a lot of stuff we could talk about misogynoir. I'm not the right person to talk about it, but uh, there's a lot of interesting parts to look at that. Mm. Uh, so it's like, it's this very strange moment where like, you're, you're kind of like, okay, farmer, like you're kind of, you're, you're getting there. Yeah, some ideas are starting to form that are kind of part of the kind of um, cultural zeitgeist of what's happening with with discussions around race right now, but it's not fully formed or fully there yet. Yeah, and then because it's it's not fully formed or fully there yet, they just kind of end up either hanging or, you know, kind of yeah. seem like flukes in this otherwise very racially uh, inundated text. <laughs> Because it is interesting that when the narration is close to one character, the the language that Far- Farmer uses is more aligned with that person's perception. Um, so, like, there's a moment where um, we're kind of closer to McKay in the narration, and he referred to um, um, Mr. Callister, who is now Orthona, as like a handsome honky. Right. So like, but I'm sorry, he doesn't refer to him as, as that. The the narration does. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that when we're near McKay, the narration uses a word like honky. But then when we're near Kikaha, McKay is frequently um, is frequently referred to as the black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I thought that was also kind of interesting as well. Right. And um, just to refer back, you wouldn't have have access to these texts, but. Uh, two things. Uh, obviously, the the again the bio chapter, the bio inf- uh, dump chapter there. Uh, Kikaha is literally a middle aged man. He's a young man in this in physical presence, but he's literally a fifty or sixty year old man with the attitudes maybe of a fifty or sixty year old man adventuring here, right? Because he hasn't aged in twenty years, right? So that's an interesting. Again, so he's is he an SP? Is he a uh, Gary Stew of Philip Jose Farmer? I don't know, but he's roughly contemporary to Farmer in like. Like, yeah. Did you say a Gary Stew? Gary Stew is the male term for. Uh, <laughs> uh, a ma- I've never heard that. <laughs> I Stew. love that. Uh, did, did you just yeah. make that up? No, no, it's a, an actual term of art, although it's nowhere near as popular uh, as as. Uh, Mary I've Stew. never heard that. That's <laughs> really funny. Um, <laughs> also, Jeff, do you remember in one of the other books they actually mentioned that demographically, like it's funny that the lords we yes. met are mostly white, but actually demographically, the lord the lords that are white are in the minority. It's like some portion of them, more than half of them are like. Uh, black or Asian in the other yeah. lords that we haven't met yet that you know they're 
off doing their own thing. So yeah, but Philip Jose Farmer doesn't think it's interesting to talk about them right. other than in passing. But right. he does at least acknowledge that they exist. Right. Um, but we yeah. don't get to spend any time with them. Um, so I think this is probably a good time for us to start transitioning this over to more of the the gaming side of the conversation. And um, one thing that I wanted to chat with you about, especially since you are the co-writer of the TTRPG Safety Toolkit, is, you know, this is a book where we have sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And um, The World of Tears is a really famous fantasy setting. Um, also, like George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire books have a lot of sexual violence in them. And they're also a common, um, it's, it's also a fantasy setting that people love and want to play in. So I'm curious, like how, when, when, when you want to game in a world where the um, source text has sexual violence in it, um, what do you do to make that safe and acceptable at the table? Yeah, so, so how, I, how I end up looking at this stuff is that, you know, there are content uh, that exists of, you know, sexual violence or, you know, even just like vehement uh, racism, like, you know, uh, or, you know, vehement queerphobia or whatever else, uh, which can be interesting to explore, but only if everyone consents to it mm-hmm. um, and it's not gratuitous, mm-hmm. right? Like there's there's a certain sense of like... Um, of where people feel like if they want to make their world harsh and terrible, that they have to engage in content like sexual violence. Uh, like in, in Love Light World, they're like, wow, look at how barbaric and like unlearned these people are. They, they you know, they, they rape people, though they rape the woman who are captured by them. And that's just what they do. And, and they was, don't see anything wrong with it. They didn't even see it as a violent act. They just kind of saw it as like a, you know, this is part of our hospitality almost is that, you know, I get to have you. Yeah. And and so, and I find that a very lazy way, like of having the default to that, to show mm-hmm. that, you know, there is that moral difference or there is, you know, there is evil in this place or, you know, there is, it is a terrible place for, for marginalized people. Like, I, I think um, in worlds like this, like you, I, I was totally satisfied with like, dangerous world that keeps changing and like has these weird like <laughs> creatures that are out to kill you all the time and you uh, can drown at any moment because there might be a lake in in, a, in an hour where you're currently standing yeah and so i think that's more than sufficient to show this is a dangerous place and there are more than sufficient ways to show you know that the people are shaped by this land too like you know uh the fact that they're constantly um they're constantly uh you know out odds with each other or that they, you know, that they're hostile towards people or that, you know, it's incredibly, you know, close knit, uh, like, uh, characters and everything like that. Um, there are many other ways to communicate what you try to communicate when you say these people engage in sexual violence and don't feel bad about it. Right. And, and I think that goes to show for, for any story too, like, um, having a default to bigotry and stuff like that. Again, without engaging with it as a, this is a bad thing and we should be doing something to about it, um, or we should be talking about it or something like that. It's just kind of just presenting it without critique uh, and and in some ways showing that that's an okay thing to just spring on people and especially in games, right? You don't, um, 
you know, where you're at at a person at any given point with your comfort levels with any form of content is going to constantly change. And some days you might be okay with engaging with that type of content, like saying, you know, like, you know what? Yes, we'll we'll have a character who uh, whose backstory involves, you know, uh, slavery, for example. Um, but you have to check in with everybody and be like, are you okay with delving into this and like having this at the table because some people are not going to be in that totally valid and it doesn't censor anything because you can i mean we have limitless imagination as human beings mm-hmm. we're able to just look at this and go okay how can we communicate the same concept of these people bad because they oppress other people uh that yeah. doesn't default to content that will harm your actual people and players at the table I agree completely because also I feel like when you're looking at something like the world of tears or you're looking at something like a song of ice and fire and you ask yourself, is this world still as um, exciting and interesting without sexual violence? And if your answer is yes, then like you don't have to include that in your game. You know, like I don't see why you can't have a game of thrones style game or a world of tears style game and just say like you know what like i don't necessarily need that in my game like yeah it's 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 not a it's not a required component exactly and and i think that that breaks down into all of the other you know looks at again i I brought up slavery and you know looked at you know transphobia homophobia any of that else stuff like yeah sometimes they're there is a chance where you look at this go, yes, I do want to explore this. And I do want this to be, it is going to be an interesting story for us to delve into this. Uh, but again, consent is key. Uh, and also knowledge that like someone can be okay with it in theory, uh, but then it gets dropped on you and you're like, never mind. I this is not playing out the way that I, I feel comfortable with. Right, right. Um, yeah, so it's just kind of this this concept where, you know, People are going to have to be continually okay with what you're exploring. Right. And, and um, you know, a lot of more uh, sensitive subjects like sexual violence and, and bigotry is something that needs to be constantly checked into and mm-hmm. say, is this necessary for what we're doing? And at the end of the day, you know, the people at your table come before the story because the story can always change, right? Right, right. I think um, when you're dealing with um, something that is maybe somewhat grounded in Uh, a parallel to history, then I would want to have the acknowledgement that these things exist, these evils like slavery or whatever, but that we don't necessarily have to engage with it. But um, like if you're playing a historical Call of Cthulhu game, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously there is racism. I mean, there continues to be racism, right? So you, and if you're playing a character, um, uh, a character of color or um, LGBT character, um, then you want to say, well, this does exist in the world, but you know, for our purposes of playing this game today, then we don't have to deal with that because, uh, you know, again, as you say, it's the people at the table. But I also wouldn't want to say that, well, this, you know, this world has Cthulhu and all this other stuff, but it's better than our world because it doesn't have all this other, you know, all, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally up to to you. Like, I'm right. I'm currently in a in a long term Pulp Cthulhu campaign on on Salt Street Games, uh, and you know, I I do play a character of color, um, and uh, especially our campaign Mask of Nihilazatep takes place across the world, like basically in every continent, right. um, and you know, that was something we had to look at and we had to go, do we want to have you know, racism? Do we want to have sexism? Do we want to have queerphobia uh, in our games? And we're kind of like, no. <laughs> and I don't think that's really taken away from uh, the history adjacent part of it because we're just like, 
we're still engaging with historical times. We're still engaging with, you know, historical places uh, and a lot of the, the, the interesting cultural context from that comes from there. Sure, uh, sure. But we don't have to go into like my character experiencing racism at the hands of NPCs right. uh, because that's not necessary, right? That's right. not necessary to our story and what we're trying to tell here. And a lot of times what will happen also, I think, is if that is happening, unfortunately, it then will fall on that. Some Everybody might want to explore it, but the work of that is being done by the people who are of that demographic at the exactly. table. So, <laughs> right? yeah, like, and, and like they, they become the default, like, um, you know, yeah, emotional labor person here right. to be the like, are weather. we doing this okay? And you're right. like... You shouldn't be placing that on other people on the table here. Like, every, <laughs> right. Everyone takes responsibility for that, right? Right, yeah. right, right, right. But yeah. then you have these things that are very deep explanations, explorations like um, Harlem Unbound, right? Which is just facing directly yeah, exactly. into that. Right. Or, uh, or like uh, Bluebeard's Bride, uh, right. Yeah, right? Yeah. which is like intensely about sexism and violence against women. Right. Uh, and like, that's totally okay. But people who are going into that game know exactly what they're getting themselves into and there still is a a, a form of safety and check-in of being like okay right. but what exactly part of this do we want to engage with or not like i mean i when i most when i run blue bride I, I usually take out sexual violence because i'm like there are many other ways to be evil towards women that is not engaging in in that right yeah. there are lots right, of different right. ways of doing that so right right absolutely so now we're sitting down and we're going to play a the Lava Light World uh, game at a uh, convention. And I'm handing out my pregens. And I've got Kikaha, um, uh, a- um, Anana, McKay, Urthona, and Red Orc for you to pick from. Which character are you picking? And how are you playing them at the table? That might be different than how they're presented in the book. Ooh, that's really interesting. Um... I mean, so this is this is an interesting part because you know when you're when you're coming into a role playing, uh, you know, role here, uh, and you have the characters already kind of so established, like there's a there's this very strange kind of like line you have to kind of draw. It's the problem that happens with characters that have a ton of backstory to them, sure. where you're just like you're playing to the backstory kind of, yeah, and not like necessarily you're playing to Willow what's... in a Buffy the Vampire Slayer game. Yeah, and you're yeah. you're not playing to the events that are happening to the characters at that moment, right? Mm. Like you're you're. It is helpful to know, like this is what this character would do generally. Like that's a very useful thing, and that's often a, a skill that you hone the longer that you inhabit a character. Um, but like when you have such an established like canon of stuff, uh, and then you go, okay. But now I feel like I'm tied to that, and therefore my brain is constantly going back to that rather than focusing on, you know, what would happen in this moment right now uh, in this context that I'm going with. Because humans are complicated, people are complicated in terms of that, right? Like, we may constantly do uh, one thing, and then one day we just switch over to another. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, Hmm. Hmm. I just I don't like Kikahab. I did not like him at all during the book. I was like, I don't like this dude. I don't like this dude. Don't like him. Um, and I I feel like the only character that I had somewhat sympathy towards were McKay and Anana. <laughs> like those were the only two that I was like, yeah, like I can I can kind of get behind what they're going for. Because the Lawrence are also just you know very much what they're supposed to be egotistical, like yeah, uh, supremacist. Right, right. Um, so you wouldn't get any enjoyment out of sort of 
getting into that mind, getting into that mindset for a little while. Or yeah, like I think I think there's a there's a whole case of like power tripping here, right? Like where it's it is sometimes fun to be a very powerful character, but is it like having to engage in constantly being um I am better than everyone else is a very strange mindset and it's not something that I personally like to engage in. Yeah. Um, well, you can always DM for that anyway. Right. right, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and even that, like, even if right, you're right, a DM, right. like you're, you're just another player at the table. You're just engaging in the, in the processes of playing right, right. game with everyone else. Sure. Um, yeah. It's just, Hmm. Uh, well, and this yeah. has taken me down um, kind of a rabbit hole as well. Uh, you know, you're talking about the process of getting to know a character. And as a player, do you prefer to go into a game with your character um, kind of pretty pretty well formed and having thought about their backstory at length before, before going in? Or do you more like to kind of discover who your character is through the process of playing that character? I am definitely more uh, both of the as a GM and a player, someone who likes playing to find out. Um, mm. And that does come down to characters. Um, I usually like establishing, you know, what I what, what I call like, you know, the core concept is, you know, you know, uh, I, I just created a, a tiefling uh, barbarian the other day. And I was just like, you know what? I'm tiefling barbarian space themed short and strong. Those yeah. are the like, core concepts. Like, cool. There we go. Um, and then I go from there and I go, okay, like, what are their general, you know, pulls in life? Like, what are they interested in uh, accomplishing? Because that, that establishes, you know, motivation. Um, but then everything else I kind of keep up in the air because, you know, especially if I'm coming in with a character with an already established group or with a group that I haven't played with or haven't made characters with, um, like, I don't know how they're going to interface with everyone else. And um, I hope that when you're coming into play, you're coming into play with other people and therefore you're going to be collaborative in some way uh, and uh, and not, you know, lone wolfing it. Um, and if you have such an isolated character unto themselves, it becomes really easy to lone wolf it because it's very mm -hmm. easy to just, again, come back into yourself and your backstory or your canon uh, rather than engaging with the game and the other characters and the story at hand. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're saying makes sense, especially in the context of these five characters that are presented. Uh, you know, the two lords are just so egotistical that, I, of course, they're going to do their things their own way. And then Kikaha is such a sort of idealized action figure that he will lone wolf it just by the nature of having all the skills available to him already. Whereas, actually, Inanna has all the same skills and more, but she is also a little bit more self-reflective than mm -hmm. Kikaha or the other characters. So that, that would give you some more leeway to play play her as someone who can adjust to the situation. And, and McKay also, he knows he's out of his league, so he has to sort of sit back and be observant a little bit before he, you know, leaps. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, was there a character or a set piece or something that happened or some kind of an object or anything that you're like, ooh, I want to steal this and incorporate it into my game? I really love the idea of an ever-changing world. I, I, I love that concept. It's, it's so interesting and intriguing to have a world that landscape is constantly changing. And what does that mean for the life that exists there? I think that some of the stronger bits of the book was coming from, you know, uh, how did Arizona end up having to make everything fit this ever-changing land? Like, you know, a lot of things fly. Um, plants are mobile. And, and, and fish are amphibious. Yeah. 
uh, these, uh, you know, everything that lives has to kind of agree with each other on certain points. Like they have to go, when we're drinking at the water hole, which happens in real life too, like in, in, in desert places, like if we drink at the water hole, we're not going to try to eat each other. Like right. we're here to, for, for mutual survival. And like, so I think there's really intriguing stuff that comes from there. And, you know, there are parts of a farmer's world that kind of falls a little flat on, on those aspects, you know, like, uh, looking at the really the people like I, I am shocked that there are tribes of people who do not cooperate with each other um, mm-hmm. in this type of world because it would make so much survivalistic sense. And and I, this is part of, you know, outdated anthropology where we think that, you know, humans are are, are meant to be enclosed, uh, you know, in isolated beings when really our strength comes from collaboration. Right. Uh, and evolutionarily, we we know that the reason we have survived for so long is because we are so damn good at working with each other. Right, right. We're finding out a lot more about cultural exchange that pre-existed any of our previous notions, you know, our notions yeah. of how far back that goes back, you know, yeah. and cultural exchange even between us and the, the Neanderthals, right? Modern man and Neanderthals, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, so it, it, that was a shock to me that I was like, that he would go for tribalism over, you know, the fact that it would make a lot more sense for all of them to survive if they all work together, right? Yeah. And so that was a really interesting part to me. And, and part of that comes from the, we kidnap humans and put them here and just went, go! <laughs> and hope they would live. Um, and I mean, that that sure is part of it, but it's it, it's fascinating to me that they didn't, that, and again, it, it comes from, you know, outdated thoughts of what people are like. Um, to go, yes, they they keep to themselves of groups of eighty at most, if I counted correctly, everywhere because like thirty men, thirty women, and twenty children usually mm, yeah, ish. Was, that was kind of how they counted it out. I was like, both tribes are the same numbers. All right, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that I think that's a really intriguing thing, and I'm 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 I would definitely want to kind of steal that for you know a, a a harsh land is this constantly changing landscape. Right, right. Hoy, what are you stealing? Um, you know, I, I like the idea and expanding on that because I think that is perfect for, um, you know, I play, I play in the, I have a Friday night you and Sue game, which is basically procedurally generated. So a uh, lava light world that's, uh, has a few set pieces, but then a lot of stuff is just a, a whole bunch of procedurally generated tables. Like, okay, you know, after one D six days, the landscape changes like, uh, chart a roll on this. Okay. Now you have a mountain <laughs> starting to grow and this is when it happens. Um, so creating a bunch of you know whether it's like the hex flower i think i forget, I forget who created that um goblin's henchman i think is the name of the creator and so creating a bunch of different sort of tables and seeing what you can do with that um i think would be terrific and then all those crazy plant creatures i think are, are great little you they're know, so weird i yeah. love them like yeah. you know like have tentacle trees uh yeah. which also <laughs> still somehow bear fruit like, that's right. a really intriguing part to me it's like how do you repopulate when you're constantly roving trees in a constantly <laughs> changing land like that that wasn't explained to me that's fascinating to think right. about right. Um, sure and, yeah. and just generally using rules for we tend to hand wave even when we're doing a lot of hex crawl i shouldn't say we i know a lot of people and i do sometimes just the difficulties of, of working through the landscape so when they realize like they're in the ditch and it's going to take them this many uh you know and the water is coming down the the, uh, the canal and they have only this long to get across the other side and climb the slope right the the tactile realities of of the physical world sometimes game you know you don't want to li- rely too much on like your skill role it's just your skill role in call of cthulhu and you know everyone always fails to spot hidden or the climb role at the worst possible moment um 
Although now you have a pusher lock rule in Call of Cthulhu, so that's good, right? Um, but having those natural um, disasters and stuff like that be a part of it, as opposed to the sort of um, moving cartoon landscape, right? I think is uh, something I always like to have, like get the tactile reality of the world, the heat, the humidity, um, the step, the smell. So those are things that I always like to work with. Very cool. And for me, the thing I want to steal is, um, Kiana, do you remember the character Shubham? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I want to steal Shubham. I love the idea of just like this like toothless old woman who's just like hiding under a blanket and just having like the PC stumble across this like blanket with a lump underneath it and then the, the, and seeing how they interact with it and then finding out it's like this toothless old woman underneath and just kind of like seeing like what that, ends up bringing to the story. I think yeah, that would be like an interesting they, they thing. couldn't communicate with her either. It's just like this, all right, so you're just vibing here. Oh, you're sent <laughs> here to die. Okay, cool. Um and I, I think I think that was an interesting moment of humanity for them to like actually yeah. help care for her mm-hmm. while they were there. Um and you know And they and, had nothing to gain from that. Exactly. And I, yeah. I that was again, it was a very there are moments for farmer, I'm just like, you're just so close. Right. You're so close <laughs> to saying something really interesting here. Right. And you just don't get there 100%. Right. I mean, Anana, again, that was a point where it was Anana was stronger than Kikaha, right? Because she was the one who intuited the wish that the old woman wanted to die and that, that she was going to give her a dignified death. And Kikaha almost couldn't look, but he felt, oh, if Anana's willing to do this, then I have to look also when, when this yeah. happens, right? And so didn't quite get there, but it was a really interesting thought, right? And yeah. Was there, you know? Yeah. And I'll be interested to see how my PCs would respond to a similar situation. <laughs> Stick so. a spear through the blanket. <laughs> you know, if it was my plan. And that's the thing is <laughs> that might end up happening. Um, all right. Well, this has been um, really fun. Um, Kenna, is there any kind of last thought about the Lava Light world that you want to express that we didn't get a chance to chat about? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, important and intriguing to look at you know past literature and how they you know were of their time because you know spec fic is always going to be a mirror to the present day when they're mm-hmm. written um and I, I i think it's a as much as i as i would definitely have not picked this up on my own time like i think it's, <laughs> it's interesting to to get that insight into you know like this is the type of fiction that was going out in the world at the time and what does this kind of mean and how does this actually reflect onto our current world as well you know we still enjoy you know conan the barbarian-esque you know stories we still enjoy you know very op characters in a in a dangerous world and uh what does that say about you know the type of stories we we engage with and how we can make those better in many ways so yeah it was it was really it was an interesting experience uh (laughs) perfect and is there anything that you're working on that you can or want to talk about and let people know about yeah, sure. Um, I mean, um, the the big announcement is that I, I am one of the contributing writers uh, for Candlekeep Mysteries, uh, the Ooh. newest D&D 5e adventure book, uh, which should be out. So uh, that's really cool. If, if you're interested in what I mean by having Shakespeare involved and stuff, that's definitely the adventure to look at, um, because I definitely took a lot of inspiration from there. Um, otherwise, I just have a couple of uh, projects uh, on my uh, that I'm self-publishing uh, soon, uh, including a, a cyberpunk setting 
um, for that system agnostics. So, uh, so you can find my stuff on Twitter and on on itch.io, uh, right. KNS and all that stuff too. Right. To and you have um, a setting for a Jiangsha, right? Which is, I think, it just about to come uh, out. Yeah. So I, I I did a I did a scenario for for uh, for Jiangshi, uh, uh Blood in the Banquet Hall as well. Um, so I did a I did a scenario for that, and I also wrote the uh, the New York setting. So terrific. Yeah. Cool. Right, there you go. And hoy, where can folks find us? All right. Uh, if you would like to give us some feedback, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you do like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, we have pretty exciting news about our Patreon. Starting with episode 101, we're going to be including all kinds of literature, even beyond the Appendix N. And you, our patrons, can vote on what it is we are going to cover. So what we're going to do is each episode, we're going to um, reveal four candidates. So this is episode 91, and we're about to reveal four candidates for episode 101. So for episode 101, we are deciding between Philip Jose Farmer's Red Orcs Rage from 1991, which is book six in the series, or would you like us to cover... Charles R. Saunders' Amaro, uh, Tanith Lee's Red as Blood, or William Gibson's Neuromancer. So we'll be covering one of those four books, and you can vote and choose which of those four you would most like us to cover for episode 101. That's available for our patrons. This episode will drop on March 22nd, so we will leave the poll open until March 29th. So our patrons can vote on that now through March 29th to decide what we're covering for episode 101. And speaking of our patrons, I would love to take a quick moment to uh, give a shout out to a handful of them. So thank you to Jeremy Harper, uh, Eric, 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 by Grinstow, Andy Action, Vixter, Matt Richards, Christopher Murray, and Ethan Schoonover. Thank you so much for your support. Um, and Kiana, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me again. It's an honor. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>